Welcome to A Moment of Bach, where we take our favorite moments from the composer's vast musical output, just a minute's worth or even a few seconds, and show you why we think they are remarkable. We are your hosts, Christian and Alex Giebert. Today we have a moment from the cantata Darzu ist erschienen der Sohn Gottes, which was suggested to us by listener Riley. And the moment comes from the opening chorus. Christian. Yeah. <laughs> do, do you like Christmas music? Yes. Good. Merry Christmas. Uh, even though it's August, this is a Christmas cantata. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, it was, it was written for the second day of Christmas. Oh, yeah. So. In 1723, which was Bach's first year in Leipzig, which is where he worked as the cantor, which is basically the music director, at the St. Thomas Church, or Thomaskirche, which is kind of like the job that he held for the most time of his life, and for which he was probably known the best. And that was in 1723, which is kind of remarkable, I guess. I mean, it's, it's 2022 right now. This music is almost 300 years old. And even though it doesn't really remind us of any Christmas carols or tunes that we know very well today, at least in our American context, Christian, you and I don't really like sing a lot of these these hymns that are quoted in these chorales. But what do you think, Christian, is Bach's most Christmassy sounding work? It's not this cantata, right? It might be Years of Joy of Man's Desiring. Definitely. People associate in, that yeah. with Christmas. In in our common culture. Jesu Joy of Man's Desiring, which is a chorale from another cantata, is associated more with Christmas, although that cantata is is uh, not necessarily a Christmas one. Right, and then I'm thinking of... But the Christmas Oratorio would probably yeah, be my Christmas, answer. Yeah, Christmas Oratorio, or I'm think, there's some, like, you know, the organ chorale prelude on In Dolce Jubilo, which is Now Sing We Now Rejoice, or Good Christian Friends Rejoice, or however you know that tune. And the Vakatov cantata is often... It's very famous. It's not. It's not a Christmas cantata, right? But it is. It is appropriate for Christmas, and especially the most famous part of it, right? And the theme of that is a little similar here to our cantata that we're looking at today. And this cantata, Darzu ist erschienen, which means for this appeared, or for this reason appeared. And then we have the phrase der Sohn Gottes, which means the Son of God. So for this reason, the Son of God appeared. And the reason is that he might destroy the works of the devil. So this whole cantata, all eight movements of it, the theme always has to do with the devil being defeated by Christ. It's a classic piece of Christian theology, which is that way back in Genesis, in one of the very first pages of the Bible, after the devil, which is manifested as a serpent, successfully tempts Adam and Eve and causes the fall of humankind, God promises that there will be retribution for the devil, that the serpent's head will be crushed by the foot of a man. And in Christian theology, that man is Jesus Christ. The Messiah. The Messiah, correct. And that's what this is all about. The first prophecy of a Messiah, right, in the Bible. Right, the first of, right there in the beginning. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) 
And our listener, Riley, sent in a really nice email talking about this particular first movement of this cantata and the extravagance and the majesty of it. Now at the very beginning of the choral entrance, we hear that text that I've already quoted, which means, for this reason, the Son of God appeared. However, Riley's favorite part of this opening chorus is the middle section, which is a fugue. Bach does this a lot in his choral movements. He will have basically an ABA form, which is known as a ternary form, and there will be an A theme, and then there will be a B section that is all a fugue, and then it will return to a recapitulation of the A theme to close out the movement. Usually these movements are like three to six minutes long. Sometimes they're a little longer. This one's around four. And you get to hear this magnificent fugue in the middle of it. Riley says, it's a true marvel to the ears, this fugue. Bach is demonstrating a high level of counterpoint and contrapuntal motion. Yep, I agree. <laughs> That's very true. Uh, Riley goes on to say, I would highly recommend anyone who listens to Bach or is studying music to listen to the whole cantata as Bach uses various techniques to represent religious imagery with serpentine patterns. Ah, yeah, there's the serpentine in the Christian. In semiquavers seen throughout the work, we're mentioning the devil. And semiquavers here, um, the American terminology would be 16th notes. So like fast moving notes. And then uh, re repetitive percussive notes which create a rhythmic impact to the piece. That's true, there's a lot of interesting color in this cantata. Uh, and we do see a lot of those little, those little floaty notes, don't we? Now let's look at that entrance of that fugue. Uh, that Riley was talking about. And here we have another setting of that same text. It's almost as if Bach thought he just couldn't help it. You know, he's, he's got this beautiful text. He's already laid out a beautiful, magnificent version of it in the A theme. But he just couldn't help it. He wanted to make sure that he got a good fugue in there too. One thing I really love about this, this first part here is the syncopation in the continual part. So the dazu is in the vocal part, but then the continual part feels like it almost stutters and finds its beat later. Or to put it another way, the entrance of that continual part, the first bass note that we hear right after the singer starts, is off the beat. Just like a lot of these Bach fugues, it's not enough for him to just have a four-part fugue with the four voice sections. The uh, tenor first, and then the bass comes in, and then the soprano comes in, and then the alto. It's not enough for him to just have four. Instead, he wants to bring other instruments in as well. So, after these first four entrances, what happens is the horns and oboes, or some of the horns and some of the oboes and some of the strings will start to enter and double on the parts of the vocal lines. Mm -hmm. 
And what's particularly notable is just the use of, of two horns. If horns or trumpets were used in a cantata, you knew that the mood was supposed to be festive. Because this, this is before the normal inclusion of those instruments in the symphony orchestra. Nowadays, uh, well, really from the time of the classical period, at least two horns would be a standard part of the orchestra. And often there are four horns in a standard orchestra and a few trumpets as well. But in Bach's time, those instruments were used for festivity. And they were hard. These, these horn lines look hard to play on a Baroque horn, by the way. These instruments were hard to play because they did not use the valve technology that we now have, the rotors and valves that our brass instruments now have. So these passages are pretty much reliant on the performer's mouth pressure. Although sometimes Bach gives them very naturally horn-like things to do, like bup, 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 bup. Yeah, or like the kind of bugle call, bum, 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 kind of stuff that makes sense to do on a horn instrument because of the way the partials work. And Christian, you kind of explained that a bit back, way back in one of our early episodes on the Magnificat. So to really give you the sense of this choral movement, the feeling of that regal theme, of that A theme, followed by the B theme of that fugue, and then the repetition of the A theme to close out the movement, and the way that it all ties together, I think the best thing is if we hear it all together with some commentary. So we'll give you a little play-by-play. Here's how the introduction starts. So horns and oboes and strings are three main instrument groups we're working with. those horns on those offbeats there. Here comes the choir. A little commentary by the instruments. Everything's pretty segmented vertically. Yeah, so far. A little break here. Lots of repeated notes with the choir. That's to imitate horns. That's to you know, pair with horns. Yeah. A lot of movement in the bass. Coming to a cadence. Fugue. bass comes in, there's two voices now. Here comes the third voice. Fourth voice. Just a quartet. But now, instruments and the full choirs are coming in. And some faster notes in the horns.
da, da, da. some syncopations there. A lot of movement in the bass now. There are overlapping entries of the of the theme here. Yeah. Really interesting stuff happening in the bass there. That's not soprano. High notes. separation now with the choir again. Commentary with the instruments. The instruments are grouped, right? Sometimes it's horns. Another group is the two oboes, and then another group is the three string parts. Sometimes an oboe feature. Now strings. Now horns are kind of come in here. Barreling to an ending here. Just such a satisfying ending there. I was telling you earlier, Christian, I like the voicing of the horns on that last on that last chord, I like where they land. It's just, I mean, everything is in its place, right? And that's kind of how you have to be with this large instrumentation. It bears repeating, even though we've mentioned this a little bit, that this orchestra was considered huge for the time. Yep. Like, huge. I mean, now, it's no big deal. You would have four French horns, three trumpets, two or three trombones, a tuba, right? And that's just your brass. And then you, of course, have more than just two oboes. You'd have flutes and clarinets and bassoons also, plus a huge string section and percussion. And here, even though it's a lot less than that, it still would have been considered a large orchestra for the time. In the middle of the wonderfully complex counterpoint, there is the most overlapping part of all after it gets going after some of the instruments come in. I said I think that there are overlapping entries at this point. The term for this is stretto, where the theme overlaps in multiple parts. Before it is finished happening in the first part, it is overlapped with another part, and then maybe even another and another. This is a lot like a canon. We've talked about that musical term before, although it's not quite as strict. But Bach had to compose the theme of this fugue, knowing that some of the parts had to overlap this way, and that was probably part of its composition. He wrote it knowing it could be overlapped. I love when you get stretto in in fugues. Uh, just because I was curious, I'm looking up the original Italian and like what the word really means, and it seems to mean strict, but also has like connotations of um, tight or condensed or um, clenched together, which makes sense because instead of having these separate fugue entries that are all really easy to find because there's some time spaced out between them, these just come one right after the other on top of each other, all squished up. Yeah, it's, whenever it happens, it, it ramps up energy. It's kind of tense when it happens. It could be 
you know, supremely smooth and beautiful like we see in the Dononobis Pacem fugue of the Mass in B minor. But other times like this, it ratchets up the energy. Yeah, and I think, I mean, look, listener, if you're if you're listening to us now, you probably already like Bach, but one thing that I always try to say to people if they're like, well, why should I like classical music? Because it seems all kind of boring to me. And that is that when you get into it and you start to like understand how these structures work, it becomes exciting. I mean, it's hard to describe it, but I mean, imagine somebody who really likes, let's say EDM, which is electronic dance music, like something we've mentioned on this podcast before that music can have this real strong drive and intensity and it ratchets up this intensity by the dynamic and not usually the tempo, but the dynamic and then like the the division of the beat going in half and then in half and then in half. So it just keeps on going, sounding like it's going faster, faster, da, 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 you know, and then it ratchets up to a point and then everything cuts and then it goes into the drop, right? Like that's a huge part of that kind of music. And Baroque music has stuff like that that functions in a similar way that ratches up tension that barrels to a cadence that pulls into a cadence in a certain way that it needs to do that people listening at the time it's funny we think we might think of these like you know these white wigs that Bach wore and these like very formal people but they would have felt in the music this same kind of thing with this almost unbearable tension and then this drop and then this just like satisfying conclusion to the musical phrase so when somebody asks, well, why, classical music is boring, so why should I care? I think it's just like any genre, right? Where once you get into it, you, then you understand what makes it powerful for people. And you understand, once you like start hearing these harmony, these progressions, and where the composers take them, that's when it starts to really hit you, like in a more um, core emotional way rather than just analyzing it. Yes, music appreciation kind of sounds like a boring task, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. you need to listen to this and learn about this in order to appreciate it. But of course, we don't believe that it's inherently a boring exercise. If we did, we wouldn't have this podcast and you wouldn't be listening to it. <laughs> but I think that there's enough... I think it's all about the music. I think if we approach the music with, like, there's at least some tiny kernel of something that I want to know more about in this music. I want to know why I liked it. Sometimes it's that. It's an emotional core that leads to an intellectual growth of understanding of something. I think that's how a love of Bach starts. And with something like this, a love of intense counterpoint in, in such a section as this, this fugue in this cantata. Yeah, and there's so much hidden complexity there. But it's hard. It's not it's not easy. Kind of like how sometimes doing the right thing in life is doing the harder thing. It's the same way with composing and with like listening to music and getting into different kinds of music. With composing it's like if you always do what comes to mind first that's easy, then you'll never grow as a as an artist. And with listening to music it's kind of similar. If you stay with your genre, if all we listened to was Bach, for instance, it would actually be very limiting. I mean, there's so much there, but of course, there's all these other genres. So it's it's about intentional listening, and it's not like you have to analyze while you listen. But what you do is you try out listening to all these different genres and find the things that people are excited about and give them a try. And it's easier than ever nowadays to do that. Even 
if you don't own the music yourself, you can find almost anything online. And you can just listen to it for free in most cases. And then, once something really grabs you, then dig into it. And you'll find, you'll find a lot of fulfillment there. And you don't have to like everything that you listen to. I think something that's incredibly freeing philosophically is if you just let yourself listen just to hear something, just to hear something different. Listen to a thing that you've never listened to before. I don't think I really knew this cantata at all until we looked at it, and it was Riley who introduced me to it. Right. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to like it. Listen to things that are not Bach, you know? And you're not obligated to like it. You're not obligated to like Bach as much as other people do. But you have to let yourself listen. And that's a, that's a good exercise. Sometimes you will start liking something that way, but other times you just, you'll just learn more about yourself and why you don't like it, or why you felt differently the first time versus the second time you listened to something. It's just, what I'm trying to say is don't get stuck in a rut and listen to the same music all the time. Mm-hmm. Because I think that limits us. I think, I think our perception can be so much wider. And now, here is the complex counterpoint of the fugue from the opening chorus of this cantata. If this introduction to a musical moment has inspired you to hear the rest of the cantata, please see the link in the episode description to see its performance by the Netherlands Bach Society. To hear our new episodes as they are released, please find us on your podcast app and hit subscribe. Okay, Christian, what moment of Bach are we going to look at next week? We will look at a moment from the Allemande of the French Suite No. 4 in E-flat major, BWV 815. Until next time, enjoy those moments. (laughs) 